As we come to 1 Kings, we've moved on from 2 Samuel, and all those adventures, the journey, the highs, the lows, the mountaintops, the valleys of the great King David, the man after God's own heart, they've pretty much wrapped up. And now we're shifting gears. And as we come to 1 Kings, we come to the book that, 1 and 2 Kings, the books that look at about a 400-year period of history, about 1,000 B.C. to 600 B.C., of the kings of Israel. Now we know after Solomon's death, who's our next king, the kingdom of Israel gets divided. So you have the ten tribes in the north and the two in the south, and we have a divided kingdom. So you have the kings of Judah, as they say, and the northern kings. There's about 40 kings total in that 400-year period. There are no good kings in the north ever. It's Ahab and the rest of his buddies, and sometimes they might do something good, but the word of God makes clear they all did evil. So there's no good kings in the north, so that's really easy to remember. If it's a northern king, then they didn't do good. And we get these guys in first and second kings. We don't really get them in first and second chronicles, which is pretty synoptic to kings, because first and second chronicles, which we'll get later on down the road, they focus on the kings of Judah, where you had quite a few kings that were really good, and even some kings that weren't great, but still good. And so that's where we're headed now in our journey as we go forward in the historical books of the Bible, verse by verse, through the Old Testament. So we left off last Saturday with the topical of David's words. You know, at the end of his life, he had words to say. And he's, he, he, passed, he passes away at 70. So as we come to the text net where David's going to step into eternity, he's 70. So that kind of gives us a line of like where he's at in life. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of First Kings. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord, the king, and let her stand before the king and let her care for him and let her lie in your bosom that our Lord, the king, may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her, so that would be know her intimately or sexually. So here's David in the final year or two of his life. He's like late 60s. He passes at 70, so it's really easy to get a timeline where he's at in life. And where it says he's old and advanced in years, the, the Hebrew there implies that he's more feeble physically. I listened to both of Pastor Chuck's studies on this text from the 70s and the 90s, and he brought out some interesting facts about this, But this, because he went to seminary, so why reinvent the wheel, right? So he brought up how this word implies to be physically frail. Now, we're going to see in these first two chapters, his mind is still sharp as a tack when dealing with one of the most serious events of his life, and he handles it really well, and he's sharp for the moment. My father, who's 92, and some of you have older parents that you can relate to this, or you've taken care of elderly people like this, I have to say in the last couple years, I cannot be with my dad and not have him tell me that he's cold. He's always cold. So I'm picking him up in August, and he's wearing a heavy jacket like it's wintertime, and he always says how the sky's so bright because there's no clouds in August, right? And, um, but he comes to our house, and you know he's got the jacket on, and if I have the and we're driving in the car, I've got the AC on me when I'm driving him up and down PCH and just look at the ocean. He's got the heat on him because our car, you know, you can do the two different temperatures. And I think, well, that's just the way it goes. And it's, it's evidently a circulation issue when it's like a circulation. So you feel cold. 
And so I can relate to this because my dad, Joe, I'm cold. I can relate to this because this is David at 70, and he's cold, and he cannot get warm, no matter how many blankets they put in him. So they bring in uh, Abishag, the Shunammite, this beautiful young lady, and here's his, he's physically feeble, and you just think like how strong David was in his youth. As a teenager charging Goliath, right? We're told he was handsome. I mean, he's a warrior. King David, from the time he's like high school senior to the time he's like probably mid-40s, he's like, he's that dude. But you know, even Arnold Schwarzenegger deflates, right? You just, it's just the way it works. We go, David's going to say, I go the way of all men. And before you really go the way of all men, you go the way of all men, where you just kind of, the law of entropy, things winding down. With all our modern medicine and healthcare, this usually doesn't happen to us in our 60s and 70s, although it can. But again, sooner or later, if you live long enough, this is what happens to us, you know? So whether Ronald Reagan in the early 90s or Bob Hope at 100 or Billy Graham at 100, this is just kind of the way it goes. And we accept that and we realize that this is our future and it's all the more important that we just redeem the time, as Ephesians says, and make redeem the time for the days are evil. And while we have physical strength, use it. While we have wisdom and a sharp cognitive capacities, use it. Make good decisions. While we have energy and resources, use them and sow them bountifully for the kingdom. Because there'll be a day when the man who suffered so much for lusting after his neighbor's wife is not interested in a beautiful young woman in his bed. That day will come. That's just the way it works. So it's just a reminder to us as we start this story that no matter how great we are in our youth, we will all, it, it, age and time are equal abusers. In the end, soon enough, this is uh, how it works out for the most beautiful woman and the strongest man. This is just the way it ends up. We go from the flower of our youth to the, from the dust we came and the dust we returned. And that's okay because a life like David, for all of his highs and lows, he loved the Lord and he always received correction and we'll see tonight, he's got a good ending, how it all goes. Now, so he's very frail. He's still the king. And it's just a time of, again, where ambitious men are, and he had many sons. And so we pick up the story now with uh, uh, Adonijah. So verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggiath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? Of course, we know David never rebuked his children. That's one of his problems. But if he didn't do it when he was younger, he's probably not doing it now. But wait to see how the text goes. He was also very good looking. His mother had born him after Absalom. So uh, Adonijah is the younger brother of Absalom, full brother, not half brother. He's half brother of Solomon, full brother of Absalom. Remember, Absalom's mom was a Canaanite. And we realize that there's just no way in God's kingdom that the people who were condemned and to be expelled from the land, that a, that a Canaanite is just ever part of God's plan to be king of Israel. That's like, that's like when secular worldly people pastor churches, like in communist countries and stuff like that. Like it's, it's never meant to be that way. It could happen, but it's not something God's going to honor. And the interesting thing about his name... Um, Adonijah, it's Adonai, the Lord, and Yah, which would be Yahweh, and his name literally means um, to, to, to love the Lord, to love the Lord Yahweh. David gave this son the name to love the Lord Yahweh. That's what the name means, which is interesting. This brings up a good point for all of us. 
David was never meant to marry a Canaanite woman under any circumstance. So we just need to realize right now, God's will, one, one, one woman, one man. That's his will. He told the kings, don't multiply wives. But if you're multiplying wives, it's at least a good idea to multiply Hebrew wives as opposed to Canaanite wives. That's just a fact. Because can two walk together if they're not agreement? God said through the prophet Amos, and the answer is no. The worldviews are opposing, and we've seen in unequally yoked relationships time and time again with the children, how far-reaching it is when two parents are not equally yoked on the worldviews, the purpose of life, purpose of what happens after death, and it just creates strife and contention and division, and that's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians not to be unequally yoked for what fellowship has Christ with Belial or Christ with demons or the table of the Lord with the table of demons, and this is the problem that David ran into, and the, the thing is, he, he had this son with the same woman at Absalom. These two sons caused more grief and sorrow for the nation of Israel than any other two men that we can look at in the timeline of David's life. These are the two sons that caused the, the that were the most ambitious. And we see that Azunijah does the same thing his older brother Absalom did. He gets the chariots. He says, I'm going to be the king, and I'm going to do this. And he was not rebuked by his dad, even as Absalom was not rebuked by his dad. And he was very good looking. Absalom was very good looking. So what a Oh, what a dangerous combination of factors. You give him a name that means he's going to love the Lord, but he doesn't. He's extremely good looking, but his heart isn't for the Lord. And he's ambitious, and he's like the sons of Adam, and this is who he is. And he's, he's, the, he's just another Absalom, but his name is Adonijah. And the fact that David gave him a godly name, but he is not a godly man, just shows us the flesh is the flesh. And even if you put, you try and make it look good, it's still the flesh. It's like when Abraham, God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 17 that he'd have a son of promise, who of course is Isaac. And he said, oh Lord, that Ishmael would stand before you. See, he already had a son through his fleshly efforts through Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant. And so essentially when God said, I'm going I'm to bring you a son of promise past the age of childbearing through Sarai, your wife. And he goes, but, but that Ishmael would stand before you. In other words, instead of believing the promise of God and being in the place where God would bless him with the promises, he's asking God to bless his flesh. And God says, I will bless Ishmael, but the promises are with Isaac. Because God can take that which is, he can, he can work all things together for good. And even Abraham's failures for good. And he can turn that around for good. But the promises are always in the spirit and the things that God's promised. And that just gets my attention here. This last thing in David's life, Adonijah, this son, yet again, another son who breaks his heart, that you can call your kid, oh, he loves Yahweh, but it doesn't mean he will. And I find so often in 34 years of ministry that people will do carnal things and say, oh, he loves Yahweh, but they don't. People try and spiritualize or give a title or a logo or frame it that something good will come from something of the flesh proactively as plan A, but it never could be plan A. Adonijah can never be the king of Israel in plan A because he's a son of a Canaanite from a woman that David should have never married. And while our yes is yes is important enough for the Gibeonites to be spared of their judgment under Joshua's covenant and saw seven sons to be seven descendants to be hung for it because the integrity of believers, yes, is more important than the judgment of unbelievers. And while God will work around that, he will not work around this. 
And that gets my attention as we've all been taking a deep look at the word going through 2 Samuel. Adonijah, the name just jumps out at you. This name, if he just lived up to his name, he loves the Lord. But he didn't. And that's a hard thing to accept. You know, if you love the Lord with your spouse and you've had children, they walk with the Lord, good for you. If they don't, that's not on you. They're adults. They make their own decisions. But how hard it must be, and I've seen this in ministry, especially with years at Big Calvary where there's thousands of people, where people just did their own thing. They just did their own thing. They walked away from this marriage or whatever and said, oh, the Lord wants me happy. And they did this marriage, and they had a kid, and then they had all kinds of problems. They did this stuff. And when it's the Lord, it's the Lord, and he can redeem it. But just because you call your kid he loves the Lord, Yahweh, doesn't mean they will love the Lord, Yahweh. And Adonijah is proof of it. Adonijah. It's a sobering reality. We read on. So he's good looking. It's just more trouble, just like Absalom. It's the second coming of Absalom. And ah, and it's even more dangerous. Verse 7. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Uriah. That's Joab. That's our Joab. And Abathar, the priest. That was David's main priest. And they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok, the priest. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiadiah. Nathan, the prophet. Shimei, Re, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Those are the mighty men we just read about in 2 Samuel. They're not with this conspiracy, this treason. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, which is an Enrogal. He also invited all of his brothers, the king's sons. So these are all the sons of David through all these different wives he multiplied. And all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Surely your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Then, while you're still talking with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king, and the king said, What is your wish? And then she said to him, My lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look. Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord, the king, and now, my lord, the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. So they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, O Lord, O king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen, fatted cattle, sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehedadiah, nor your servant Solomon. 
has this thing been done by my lord the king and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord king after him so Nathan the prophet is a bit of a hero here remember he's one that had told David confront him with the sin with Bathsheba that's our Nathan so evidently Nathan and Gad who rebuked him for the census last week in 2 Samuel they're contemporaries at the same time two different prophets of the Lord for the king at the same time so Nathan comes in on this situation and he's sharp his head's on a swivel and he sees what's going on here again coming from our society and our culture and our uh, U.S. politics and the history of U.S. politics we don't quite understand this because this whole country was founded on rejecting King George. It's in our constitution, his name multiple times. But studying monarchs of Europe, studying the French monarchs before the French Revolution, studying the Prussian monarchs and the, the British monarchs and the Russian kings and the czars and all that stuff, we need to remind ourselves, and even the Asian monarchs, that whenever a king would die, there'd be multiple princes and there'd be position of power to control and come to the throne, and almost always whoever didn't got executed. Because they can't be an option for power. And men love power. Look at politics in America. It's safe to say if people in U.S. politics could kill their rivals, they probably would. In fact, in some cases, they may have, for all we know. I don't know anything, but we don't know. Only the Lord knows, and I don't care, and I don't want to know. But nonetheless, when you look at, like, the Russians and 300 years plus of the Romanovs, every time someone came to the throne, they'd have to kill the other princes to avoid them from being an option. You eliminate the option. That's what you do. So like Ivan the Terrible and all these different, Catherine the Great, that's what you do. Catherine the Great eliminated her husband to advocate to the throne. And he, he was a horrible leader and a, an evil, demented man. But yet you had to kill him. Peter the Great actually killed his own son because his own son was accused of treason against him. And it broke his heart. But because of the pressure of his surrounding council, Peter the Great had to execute his son for treason. And then it was his two daughters that lived to full adulthood. And the one daughter, her son, became the prince who married Catherine the Great, the Prussian princess. And that's how it all works there in Russia. But all that to say is he actually was forced by the people to put to death his own son, Peter the Great, one of the greatest kings of all time in human history. So we don't understand this and how we're raised in American politics. But if you're raised in Russia, you would understand this. And if you study British monarchy, Monarchies, when you're growing up in Great Britain, you'd understand this a little more because this is the way it works. And the Germans and Prussians definitely understand it from their heritages and how that works. And the French, needless to say, all those kings before, you know, Louis the Sun King and all, just was it Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun, they call him like the Sun King, like 70 year reign. This is how it works. It's all or nothing with princes. In many cases, there's battle for power and one king to rule them all like the lord of the rings one ring to rule them all and whoever's the king whoever wrestles with it builds the alliance allegiances they're going to rule and what adonijah has here is what absalom never had and that is joab that's a on a chessboard he's a powerful piece to control power Joab has cast his lot with adonijah and probably knowing that solomon was the choice of david and by the way, even an elderly David, a weak David, the moment he hears that Joab is with Adonijah, that's all you had to say. And by the way, with elderly people, some things will snap them out of like being elderly and a little fuzzy. I'll tell you what, to this day, if I mention anything with someone messing with my dad's money, boy, he gets razor sharp. <laughs> What'd you say? Say that again. 
right? Like he's 92 and, you know, he didn't, you don't even know. Like some days he knows what year it is. Maybe some years, days he doesn't. Know. But because of some of the stuff that has gone on in his past, not involving me, it, you know, that'll, that'll wake you up really quick if, you, if you're like, wait a second, you know, like, he's like, I need money in my wallet. Who's got my wallet? Dad, you got your wallet. Here's 20 bucks. And, you know, the story, I handed it to him. I go, Dad, I'll give, I'll give you money right now. I got out of the car, went around, opened the door, handed it to me. like, what's this for? I go, I thought you wanted 20 bucks. I don't need 20 bucks. Okay, there you go. well, that's your wallet. Put it back in your back pocket. But the thought, certain things, and think about David with Joab. He was going to fire him twice. He couldn't get rid of Joab. And so he's all feeble in there, and the Shunammite's with him. He's like, oh, I'm cold, I'm cold. And all of a sudden, like, here comes in, like, dude, Joab, out of measure. What? What? Snapped out of it. That's, you say Joab and Adonijah, that's all you have to say. And Bathsheba saying, the lot will be cast against us if you don't do something. Man, David loves Solomon. By the way, the fact that David never disciplined his children, we can presume that that impacted Solomon because look at the book of Proverbs. What does Solomon say throughout the book of Proverbs? Deal with your kids. Spank your kids. Discipline your kids. Don't spoil your kids. They'll ruin your life when they're older, right? Well, who did that? David. What did Solomon see growing up? All the results of his dad not disciplining his brothers and all the grief and heartache it caused the nation. The one guy in the Bible says more about raising your children with consistency and discipline and accountability was Solomon. And here Solomon's life is on the line because yet another one of his half-brothers, unchecked by his dad, cold in bed with a Shunammite virgin because he's never dealt with things. But he is going to deal with things in this final episode of his life. But this is very serious because if Bathsheba and Solomon lose this situation, they all lose their lives. Benaiah is going to be executed. Solomon is going to be executed. Bathsheba is going to be executed. And that's Best, do you, if we can presume that Adonijah's mom is still alive, maybe she's not. But if she was, there's no way her son's going to be the king and Bathsheba's hanging out in the palace, right? We all know how the human experience works. That's not going to work. This is all or nothing. And Adonijah says, I'm going for all of it. I'm all in. All the chips on the table. I'm all in. And it forces Bathsheba, Nathan, Zadok, all of them, Benaiah, it forces them to, to be all in as well. And in this, this power struggle politically, it's not elected, removed from office, that kind of thing. It's live or die. It's all the power or execution. The context is very serious that way. Verse 28, we read on. So Nathan had a good plan. Um, and it's, but uh, go, go back to verse 20 for a second, where Bathsheba says to her husband, and as for you, my Lord, O King, the eyes of all Israel are on you. We don't really get any interactions in their marriage, do we? Like David saw her, lusted after her, took her from Uriah, had Uriah executed by the hand of Joab. And by the way, by the hand of Joab, right? So Bathsheba's husband was killed by the hand of Joab. And now she gets word that Joab is aligned with Adonijah. You see how all the wheels are moving and all the flow charts going here? She told, the only other time we see her speaking in the Bible, she says, I'm with child to the king. She reports that she's with child. And now, decades later, 
she says, and she was the queen, the, the queen of all the women. She was the queen. And as for you, O Lord, my king, the eyes of all Israel are on you. What a powerful word coming from your wife in the final paragraph of your life. This woman that he took from Uriah, she just says, and as for you, my Lord King, the eyes of all Israel are on you. Sometimes wives have to remind their husbands of things they need to be reminded of. And it goes both ways. Sometimes husbands need to remind their wives of what they need to be reminded of. Sometimes human beings need to remind other human beings of things they need to be reminded of. But this is a leadership thing, and this is a pretty famous verse, actually, in the Bible. For as for you, O King, the eyes of Israel are on you. Don't be afraid of being a leader. Don't be afraid of being accountable and, and being a leader for our children or our children's children or a leader at work, people we lead, our employees. Whatever we do, wherever we lead, we can't shrink back from it. It's okay that the eyes of all Israel are on us. It's okay that people of covenant, are, their eyes are on us. We just need to step up and do the right thing. That's what we need to do. We can't shrink back. And it's just so important for spirit-filled men and women to be willing to step up, rise up when they're young or they're old. So when he's young, he's got to take on Goliath. When he's young, he takes on Goliath and he goes after him. And now he just needs to get out of this bed with his chill for all the eyes of Israel are on you, even as they were when he charged Goliath. From his senior year of high school till his assisted living care. But now a critical decision has to be made. And it's going to affect so many people. And this reminds me why we can never check out and retire in our mind. Because really, you never know the most important decisions you make for your life, for the people you love, and the people you influence might be the very end of your life. I go back to Billy Graham. His most impactful outreach that he ever did of the Billy Graham Crusades was the L.A. Crusade he did on on TV. His last crusade on TV in his mid-90s, his message was like 18 minutes long, he reached more people with that message and that outreach in any other of the world-famous Billy Graham Crusades. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So who's not to say in our mid-90s that we're going to have to pull it together someday and really realize that all eyes of Israel are on us, and we have to make very important decisions, and we need to say things that need to be said, whether it's to our children, our children's children, a congregation, a church movement, or the people of the United States. All eyes of Israel on you. And it's just a reminder, there are eyes on us. And some people, they don't want eyes on them. They just want to disappear, hide somewhere in the desert, and not have anyone hold them accountable for anything. And I say, forget that. We should, be, we, we should want to rise up and be a voice for truth. Jesus died on the cross to follow him, and he's going to lead us so we can lead others to him. Go make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. And we shouldn't shrink back from responsibility to shine our light for the Lord, speak for the Lord, and do what the Lord's called us to do. And yeah, all eyes of Israel are on us. So whether we fail with Bathsheba and Uriah and still keep moving on, fail with Absalom and still keep moving on, we're still going to keep moving on. The kingdom will be restored. The Lord's not done. And we want to keep going forward. We want to keep going forward from victory, how we handle victory. We want to keep going forward from failure. All eyes of Israel are on us, and we want to be fruitful. And we want, to, we want to leave a legacy and example from our leadership with the Lord that all of our strength, all of our weakness, yeah, all eyes of Israel are on us. And it's good to remember that. And it's not to remember it so much to be moved by fear, but to be strengthened to lead and just take the initiative and do what's right and go for it with the Lord and let it inspire others. And even in the final paragraph of your life, 
to have your wife come in and tell you all the eyes of Israel on you. You need to, you need to, you need to tell them what the next thing is. And you got to do it. Verse 28. Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the, the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. Hey, look at that. David, he's out of bed. He's on the move. He's affirming what he already said he was going to do. So obviously it was known. He said, I'm going to do it this day. Yeah, the urgency of the day, whether you're young or old. He said to Goliath, this day you come at me with spears and swords, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. David understood this day and the magnitude of this day, the moment to respond now and take action now. Not tomorrow. Today is the day of the Lord. Today we don't harden our heart. Today is the day of salvation. This day. This day I'm going to put this straight. Verse 31. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord King David live forever. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jedidiah. So they came before the king, and the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. That's the king's mule. No one rides on it. It's the most, it's like the holiest animal in Israel. Either the king rides on it, or who he says can ride on it. That's like the king's pony. No one messes with the king's mule. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, the prophet and the priest, king over Israel. Long lives King Solomon. Blow the horn and say that. And then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Hey, no ambiguity here. This is the way it is. Benaniah the son of Jehadiah answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiadiah, the Cherethite, the Pelethites, those are the mighty men. That's his, that's his uh, secret service. Those are the mighty men for David. They went down and they had Solomon ride on King David's mule. And they took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn. And all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him. And the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy. So the earth seemed to split with their sound. So everybody comes out with their instruments. They're all, it's like almost when David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. And they're all dancing in the streets. Now they're all dancing because Solomon, it's clear now. There's no more ambiguity. We're not talking about an old king in his castle with the Shunammite girl keeping him warm. We are talking about the new king. That which was is now done. That which will be has now come. It's time. The reign of Solomon. Now Ananijah... And Ananijah, verse 41, and all the guests who were with him heard it, and as they finished eating, and when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, why is this city in such a noisy uproar? And while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest, and Ananijah said to him, come in, you're a prominent man, and bring good news. And then Jonathan answered and said to Ananijah, oh, no, <laughs> no, our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent him with Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehadadiah, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they made him ride on the king's mule. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. They've gone up from their rejoicing, so the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you've heard. Also, Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. 
Then the king bowed himself on the bed. Also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. Well, verse 49, So all the guests who were with Adonijah, they were afraid, and they arose, and each one went his way. Yeah, you think? Man, you get, you, that's how it works. With, you play the world's games, you pay the world's price. Verse 50, Then Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar there it would be in Jerusalem and, and it was told Solomon saying indeed Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon for look he has taken hold of the horns of the altar saying let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword then Solomon said if he proves himself a worthy man not one hair of him shall fall to the earth but if wickedness is found in him he shall die so King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar and he came to uh, and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. That's pretty merciful, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty merciful. Like, this guy was going to have you executed, your mom executed, and all your dad's main closest friends executed. That's pretty merciful. Solomon, before, we're going to see him ask for wisdom from the Lord, but before he asks for wisdom from the Lord, we see his wisdom. Because this verse 52, if he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair shall fall to the earth. Not everyone gets a second chance, but he had a second chance. But some people, you ever noticed, no matter how many chances you give them, they're just, they're just that way. And he's that kind of guy. So Solomon spared his life. He, he showed him grace. He showed him mercy, just like he'd learned from his dad. David's rejoicing. One quick thought before we move on, where David said that um, they're saying, may, may Solomon be even more so verse 37 may solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord king david then the people say that again in verse 48 uh also the king said thus must be the lord god of israel who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes can see it so uh those all those guests left but before that it said that his throne would be greater than uh david's throne that that solomon's would be better than the throne of david so that's pretty awesome because ultimately we want what we want with our children, and even the legacy of people who impact is that they do more than us, right? Like, that's the expanding kingdom. We want to see the kingdom expanding. So when we think about, like, the legacy of our life, we don't want things to retract when we leave because God's kingdom is an expanding kingdom. So when you think about your impact on anyone, anybody, we don't want things to get less when we leave. We want to take the life that we've lived and the lessons we've learned and the, and the, the kingdom, the promises, the, the, the life of Christ in us. We want to take that and we want to give it to other people before we go. And ultimately, David's not a small-minded person like, well, may I be the greatest king ever, and if there's 20 kings after me, may they never equal me. He's not like that. They're all in agreement. Let's Solomon. David wanted his kingdom to expand. He wanted his kingdom to be better than it was when he established it. So, in other words, David steps into eternity. This is the kingdom. He steps into eternity. The kingdom rises and gets better. That's what his desire was. And see, this is how God wants us to be, that we have a, a big vision and we're not small-minded. Because small-minded, petty people, when they leave the company, they want things to get worse. When they, they want everything to fall apart when they're gone. Some people are like that. Like it has, When you're narcissistic and you're the center of the universe, there are people like this. And maybe you're thinking, like, I'm not sure I understand you. I am telling you, there are people who, when they leave the ministry, believe it or not, they, they want the pastor that succeeds them to not be as successful as them. 
There are people when they're no longer the teacher and someone replaces the teacher, they hope that teacher's not as good a teacher as they are. That's a human response. A real check of your heart is, is when you're gone on and there's greater success for what you left behind. So if you moved on as the vice president, the new vice president has more sales than you ever had. You should rejoice in that. A small-minded person would be jealous. You know, when we left Calvary Costa Mesa on Monday nights, God brought Garrett Beeler to us, Scott, myself, others. We poured into him. We raised him up. He was green. Garrett, he's, he's a warrior now, but old Garrett Beeler was green. He showed up for his interview with Pastor Chuck in a suit and tie. And I, I, He goes, Chuck just hired me. I gave him a big hug. I was like so happy for him. He was a successor. We thought it might be Tim Chaddock who started Reality LA at the same time with Hector helping him, Pastor Hector, who was here for years and now in Texas. But I really wanted success. And this isn't about me, but I'm just saying, like, I, I really wanted things to go well. Like, by the way, the last thing you want to do is leave a ministry with Pastor Chuck and have it fall apart. Like, you want to look good. And I can't tell you honestly how relieved I was that first Monday I was gone that Garrett Beeler had 300 more people than we ever had in that sanctuary. I was so happy. I was happy for Garrett Beeler. He's an evangelist. I'm not, I'm not really an evangelist. We all know that. Garrett Beeler's an evangelist. He was the right person for Monday night. And it grew and it grew and it grew and it had like a seven-year run that was phenomenal. And we rejoice in that. Like I, would, I wanted to see the sanctuary full for Garrett Beeler. If and when I ever step into eternity, if someone replaces me at worship generation, whatever the Lord does, I would want to see more people here for them than there ever was for me. Like, that's how I want it to be. When I stepped down as a team, the coach of the U.S. surf team, I had pride and I felt hurt by it all, but I still wanted Brett Simpson to be successful. Brandon Phillips, who was our new pastor here, he was the assistant pastor for Brett Simpson the next year when they won the world championship with the team that Brandon and I had trained for a couple years, and I was happy for him. I was really happy to see Zoe Benedetto in the finals and Taj from San Clemente and these guys. I was, I was really happy for him. When we step into eternity, we want the people we've impacted to rise up and do more than we've ever done. That's what I'm saying. Don't you? And if you don't, why not? See, I've had a perspective as a parent that I want, I would hope that when I'm gone, it won't even be about me. The focus will be about Hannah, the prophetess, married to the pastor, Leah, the CEO, like just all that she does, it's amazing. This Wonder Woman, loves the Lord. All the stuff she does over at Everwell with the women and the kids and all the stuff that she does, her impact. Timmy, the captain, what's God going to do with his life? Luke, the genius, how's it all going to play out? The man whose convictions are so strong that he draws a line in the sand over certain things, won't shop at certain stores, won't support certain people because of where they stand against the kingdom and against God's word. Man, when those kids are 40, I can only hope and pray. No one even remember who I am. And the example I use for this is Hudson Taylor, one of the most famous missionaries of all time in the China mission, Hudson Taylor. Most of you know the name of Hudson Taylor. He changed the world. He went to China, dressed like the Chinese. The rest is church history. I don't even know his dad's name. You don't know his mom's name. We don't know. If you do know his dad or mom's name, you can tell me after service. But his dad was a faithful pastor in a small village in England, and his mom was a faithful pastor's wife in a small village in England. And they worked hard, and they served the Lord just like faithful pastors do, like Hector when he's in Long Beach all those years, or whatever you got. 
who even remembers them? We remember Hudson Taylor. That's how I, I would want it to be. And I hope that's how you would want it to be. Because when we're done, we're done. And we don't want the throne of our life to get weaker. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we want to see the kingdom get stronger. And this goes back to my whole philosophy of the days that we're living in, the times that we're in. Because the world sees retraction. We do see retraction. We see uh, economic retraction in our country. We see inflation. We see the recession. We see the reality. And no matter how you paint it, it's the reality. We see global retraction. Europe, China, we see the retraction and we're coming into uh, a difficult time by anyone's standards, by anyone's opinion economics, we're coming into an 18-month, the two- to three-year recession, depression on a national, global level. Everyone's retracting. People are laying, corporations are laying people off. People got stuff they can't sell or give away. It's, all the cars are being repoed. That's the story of the month right now. The housing market's crashing. But this is not how we see things. If the, if the whole plan has to, ret- has to retract by 40% to get the proper value on economic wealth, let the planet do what it's going to do. Let the wealthy do what they're going to do. And let them fight over it and worry about it and lose sleepless nights. But we serve the king of kings and lord of lords. And in the end, our equity is the kingdom. Our equity is our faith. Our equity is our bright light shining for Christ. Our equity is the is the faith that we have being passed on to the next generation. Our equity is to see bigger, greater things than ever before. That's who we should be as a church of Jesus Christ. So let the world in fear without Christ retract, 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 and figure out how they're going to recalibrate everything. But let the disciple of Christ, male and female, expand, expand, expand as they see the kingdom coming even closer the day of the Lord now than it's ever been before. And anything that you would watch or see that make you think, wow, this is what the Bible says, right. So how much more should we be that faithful servant, male or female, as we see the day of the Lord coming? Because as David stepped into eternity and passed the baton to his son Solomon and would hope for greater things for him than he had ever accomplished in his life, so too, when we look at the future, and in spite of all the chaos globally and nationally, socially, politically, and morally, we serve Jesus Christ. And our citizenship is in heaven, and we are ambassador of Christ, and we are told that he's the author and finisher of our faith, and we have a triumphant faith. So if we live, we live for Christ. If we die, we die for Christ. And the legacy of our life is to pass on that faith, to pass that baton like a relay race to whoever is behind us and, and pass them the scepter of the kingdom or, or the baton of the race, but pass on them the blessings and look at them with expectation that greater things are in store for them with the King of Kings than we've ever experienced in our life. Yes and amen. That's our worldview on August 23rd, 2022. That is the worldview of those who bow the knee to King Jesus. That is the worldview of those who live by faith and know that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, who believe in him for who he is, what he's done, what he's promised, and what he's going to do. And aren't you glad that's our worldview tonight? Yeah, that's why we sing like that with Scott, right? Because that's our worldview. I feel sorry for the world. Oh, my goodness. I watch this stuff just for pretty much entertainment. But Jesus is coming. And anyone behind us, we're not doom and gloomers, but we see greatness for them. Chuck saw the king coming. Pastor Chuck saw Jesus coming. 
And it's in almost all of his messages, one way or another, when you listen to him from 30, 40 years ago. And Jesus didn't come in his timeline, but he gave us a baton. And he might come in our timeline. But if he doesn't, I'm giving someone else the baton. Are you with me? Faith increases. The focus of our faith is Jesus, and the confidence of our faith is him and who he is. So we are not moved, but we are strengthened. And I encourage us to see a bigger vision, not just for our life right now, but those who are coming after us. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. There's great things to be done. Believe all things. Hope all things. Hold fast to the king and stay after it.